Today's psalm, two of the greatest things we learn from the Messiah and the terrible way we come to know them. Welcome to Coffee with Creamer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Creamer, for a conversation about faith, life, and culture. We'll look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place. So as I'm going through the Psalms again, it's always fascinating to me how much more variety there is in them uh, than I had anticipated. Uh, And I I mean, obviously, this is my first, it may not be obvious, but it is my first real journey through the Psalms line by line, you know, one Psalm after another, all the way through 150. I'm, I'm on number 62 right now. And so I'm making all these observations, you know, about how unique individual metaphors are or why a certain angle of or perspective about the Messiah is distinct in this psalm or that psalm. I think going back through them again, obviously, I would change that perspective and realize that some of the things I didn't notice until I got to Psalm 62 probably were brought up a half dozen times in the Psalms before it, and I just didn't see them until I got to number 62. I can be dense just like everyone else. So the point is, uh, God is persistent, and he gets those metaphors across. So the language of Psalm 62, this one, uh, the particular imagery that's used is really powerful. It is common imagery about the high and the low and the contrast between them, but the particular way he uses it here uh, is unique. Uh, to, to my understanding so far, it is unique in the way he describes uh, the Messiah for us and what we learn from the Messiah. So that's what we want to arrive at. So it begins with the superscript to the choir master according to Jeduthun, a psalm of David, the only part of that that would be unique or interesting for us, again, not unique but distinctive, again, would be the psalm of David, the part that has content to it. A reminder that this is a messianic psalm. And because of the way I want to relate this one to the New Testament and to Christ, to the Messiah of the New Testament, uh, is different enough or optional enough, I guess I could say, uh, that I, w- I want to make mention of this one idea, that the Psalms are the hymns of Israel. And so in the same way that we, if you grew up in church, for instance, you know the words to hymns that were familiar to you. You remember them not because you felt like you had to memorize them, but because you just said them all the time. You sang them all the time. They sang the Psalms all of the time. So they were eminently familiar with these uh, concepts and with the language of the Psalms, with the phrases of the Psalms. And so, you know, very often when we're reading the New Testament and there's a quotation or a reference or even an allusion to something in the Old Testament, 
uh, we'll say, oh, look at that. We dug down and found this reference to Christ from the Old Testament that's in the New Testament. But, you know, for the people to whom it was originally written, their familiarity with Christ and, and among whom Christ was living, their familiarity with the Psalms made it automatic that they would say, oh, that's that's what the Messiah would be like. That's what we would expect to see about him. And so, uh, in a lot of ways where we think we're discovering things, we're really just paying attention to what should have been obvious, at least to the first audiences uh, regarding the Christ, uh, either as being present when these things happened and they saw it happen to him, or uh, in receiving the first letters that describe it or the first gospels that describe it, which is where we'll take it from today as we read it from a gospel. So here's the psalm uh, beginning in verse 1 after the superscript. So knowing that it's messianic, uh, I want to take that approach basically and read it first uh, as his prayer because it is a psalm of the Messiah. This is what he would pray and what he would be saying to his audience, to the people that he cares about. And so uh, here's ver- verses one through four will start to make the point of what the rest of the psalm is about. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall or a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Selah. The first four verses giving us, and and this psalm is really just three sets of four verses, each one sort of paired up so that in the first couple of verses here, he's giving us these statements about how God is his rock and salvation and fortress and so on. And in the last half saying, but in contrast to him are the enemies, the people who are causing the problems, right? And then there are the next four verses where you, again, have them paired up into twos. So the repetition of the first lines, but in this repetition, there is a little difference in the first lines, for God alone, my soul waits in silence, a declaration. This is just something that's true about me. I'm waiting on God. But in verse 5, it is an imperative to himself, an exhortation to himself. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. This is verse 5. Verse 6, he only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. And he makes a little adjustment there. It's not about being greatly shaken now. It's about being shaken at all. I'll explain why I think that happens in that verse in just a little bit. And then he goes on in verse 7 to say, describe the opposite end from where the enemies were to describe why he's right to find his only hope in God. So on God rests my salvation, as he had said before, and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God, the same way he had talked about him as a fortress above. But then he says to himself in the imperative, trust in him at all times. Now he says to everyone, O people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. And there's something happening there with the pour out your heart before him just after he is described in verse 4 at the end of the first section, the people thrusting the Messiah down from his high position. We'll 
come back to it. Then in the last four verses of the psalm, starting in verse 9, and again, these are paired up. Those of low estate, he describes us, he describes human beings uh, in verses 9 and 10, and then in verses 11 and 12, returns to saying why our confidence should be in God. So in verses 9 and 10, it's those of low estate, so now we're down in the low places again, are but a breath. He brings up this breath imagery for the first time. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, they go up, but they are together lighter than a breath. And it's sort of a meaning of them going up like they do in the balances. It's very interesting imagery we'll come back to in verse 10. Put no trust in extortion, set no vain hopes on robbery, If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Almost an odd moralistic kind of statement, right? Uh, Stop extorting, don't commit robbery, and don't be proud about your riches. But this, this actually fits ideally with where the psalm has been taking us to this point. And then the last two verses of the psalm, we're back to finding these things in God. Once God has spoken in verse 11, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. This is the word that's so common in the Old Testament for God's covenantal, uh, faithful, merciful, enduring love for his people, steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. And why he ends that way, we'll also address when we get to that section. And what's, so before we actually start breaking down the, four, the three parts of the psalm, the, the three sets of four verses, uh, just the, the general observation to begin with, that in the first four verses, he's uh, stating as a declaration, I have confidence in God, I trust in him, and in opposition to that are the people who make me need to have confidence in God, the ones who use their power to destroy, and the ones that you might be inclined to turn to for help. But no, soul, don't turn to them. Don't turn to those ones who are actually trying to destroy you. Instead, in verses 5 through 8, it is, trust only in God, because in God you'll find someone who will respond to your pleas. So in the last four verses, it's not surprising that in the first part, he would be saying, so don't trust people, don't trust yourself, you lack power, and people are not going to have the ability to rescue you, but God, in the last two verses, in response to those other two things, God, in the last two verses, is the one who does. He has power, and he has steadfast love, he has mercy to give to us. The general direction of the psalm is really straightforward. It's easy to see. The imagery is what makes it so powerful. And I think because of the imagery and the fact that we're supposed to hear not just us immediately praying these words, but hearing our Messiah pray them in truth about himself and with a desire for us to learn what they mean and to know ultimately that how we learn these things is from him and from how we interact with him is fairly powerful. So the psalm moves from sort of a simple declaration, hey, you want to find power and uh, love, you're going to find it in God. You know, that's the only place you should look for it. Absolutely true, and that's worth saying by itself and not to be dismissive about it like I just was. That, that is absolutely worth a psalm. But this goes beyond that in what it reveals to us from the Messiah and about the Messiah 
and about us. That's why I said one of the greatest things we learned from the Messiah, two of the greatest things we learned from the Messiah, but this psalm is also about the terrible way that we learn them. And uh, it's subtle in the sense that it, it reveals the terrible way we learn these things, but it's not that subtle. And by the time we see it happen with Christ, it's not subtle at all where it comes from. So uh, let's take it a piece at a time. Verses one through four, first of all. And this has to do with, you know, there because in verse four, I, I've already read it to you, but I'll, I'll read the, the bigger portions to you again in a moment. But because in verse four, it describes him being thrust down from his high position. And this is describing the anointed one, the Messiah, being thrust down from his high position. In this case, David, as he's talking about it. And because later in the psalm, we're going to return to those who are of a high estate. But their estate is a delusion. They're just a breath high up in the balances. Because of that imagery being used a couple of times, we realize that when a person is in a high position, I mean, you know, it's the expression that we use. The higher they are, the harder they fall. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. I don't remember the expression. But whatever it is, it gets to that point, that the higher up you are, the harder the fall is going to be. And so here, the Messiah is looking for help, deliverance, and this is what God alone for God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. This awareness that he needs salvation, that the Messiah is, is praying for salvation. And again, we can't pretend like Jesus himself doesn't do that. He does. But David certainly does that. And he's the messianic image in the Old Testament. So for God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. Why do I need salvation? For the same reason I need a rock and I need a fortress because I could be shaken because I'm in a precarious position. And because of that precariousness, I'm the, the position that I'm in, stop, stop with the Messiah for just a second, just about us as human beings, we're in a precarious position, and we know that. That's not a surprise for us. Uh, I've read things recently about the differences in the genders and in how they're played out in our culture. This is not even a part of the culture war about all the gender discussions. Just psychological observations about it that men have a tendency often in our culture to be catastrophic in their view of the world, that if anything goes wrong, suddenly they're gonna lose their job and be homeless and they're gonna die next week, you know, and everything's gonna be awful. That this is how we perceive things. If something goes wrong, everything's gonna go off. Well, I think that's just a part of human nature. We do think catastrophically about things. And part of the reason for that is because sometimes we know it happens that a person is on top of the mountain, and the next minute, they're frozen and dead being found by the next mountaineer going up the top of the mountain. Uh, my point is to say, humanity is in a precarious position, and the Messiah experiences that precariousness. It's a part of his incarnation, obviously, in Jesus, it's the incarnation, in David, it's just the fact that, yeah, he's a deliverer, but he faces all the woes and troubles and weaknesses and uh, fragility that we face also as human beings. And so precariousness just goes with being human to adopt human form as Christ does, to become human as Christ does, means to adopt that same precariousness. And if you, and again, if you say, but Jesus is different, you know, he can command the waves and the wind and but that's him as a perfect person, a perfect man. 
just doing what Adam was given authority to do, you know, to rule over the creation. This is when the Messiah takes on human form. Well, let me describe it for you this way. In, and I, I'm just going to use the example that's in Luke 4. I think we could choose, I, I didn't look for them, but I suspect because of what popped to mind as I was thinking about this text in Psalm 62, I suspect we could go to about a half dozen different gospel accounts and find language that would uh, reinforce this idea in Christ. And so what I'm, what I'm describing is how uh, Jesus also experiences humanity's precariousness, and that our relationship with him is sort of premised on that. Oh, he's he's another human being. He's another man. So we're going to treat him just like another man in this light. So the Messiah experiences humanity's condition, which means our fragility or our vulnerability to being cast down. So in Luke 4, I think it comes to the forefront pretty pretty prominently at the end of what I'm going to read to you. So this is the account, you know, where he returns to Nazareth, his hometown, or he's in Nazareth, uh, where he grew up, and he's reading in the synagogue, right? And he quotes the passage from Isaiah, and it's a messianic passage. And, and so there's a lot of interaction about that. And I'm going to read parts of it to you in a minute when we get to the second part of the psalm. But all of this is built around understanding what that psalm says, why that crowd in Nazareth, why it's recorded that they do what they do, which is really weird. I mean, what they do is strange. So here's how it goes in Luke 4. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. So a direct reference to his incarnation in the text itself, by the way, aside from the fact that this is super early in his ministry. So, I mean, just right after all the temptation and the wilderness and all that stuff. So it says, so when he came to Nazareth, then he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. This is what anybody would do who was going to be a rabbi, going to be a religious leader for them. And he's participating in the synagogue like everyone else in the community. So he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. So this is the custom. It's not unique to him. They hand the scroll to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. So he selected the passage, and the passage is, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. The point of this is that he has been sent by Yahweh. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me. He's, this, is, this is a messianic passage explicitly, and Jesus chooses to read it. And it is to all to do this, Jesus says, as he's reading that passage, he reads the last part of it that he's going to, to proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor, the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him because this is an important messianic passage. And he began to say to them, and this makes it more important, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I mean, effectively, this is his declaration that he's the Messiah. Here I am. The Lord has anointed me to declare the acceptable year of the Lord's favor. I am anointed to bring you this message. He's the Messiah, right? Couldn't be any plainer. And what's their response? To the declaration that he himself is the Messiah, their response is to speak well of him. No problem. 
And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, now we get the second reminder in Luke, that this is about the incarnation. This is about him coming into the world to do this for us. Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, now here I am right among you. Now, these are not his words. I'm going to quote his words in a moment. But here I am right among you. I was, I was raised among you. You know who I am. And yet I'm the anointed one. And you would think, oh, there's nothing special about this guy. He's just, he's just the carpenter's son. But they love it. They're marveling at it. All It says all of them. Not only are their eyes fixed on him, they are all marveling at what he has said, at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, isn't this Joseph's son? We wouldn't have expected him to be able to do this. And he said to them, doubtless, you are going to quote me one day this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. Oh, you're all marveling at me right now. Ooh, this is one of ours, and look how special he is. And this is amazing. Wow, where did he do? He was raised by a carpenter. How could he speak this way? And he says, yeah, you say that now, but eventually you're going to be saying to you, oh, yeah, you think you're special? Fix yourself. And what he means by that is they're going to be saying to him, take yourself down from this cross. Go ahead. Solve your own problem, Mr. Mighty. And You know, that's, I mean, he's just telling them, you're going to turn on me. But why is he saying that? Because they're about to turn on him. He's about to illustrate why they're going to turn on him. And it has to do with exactly the fact of what made them like him. Because he was from them. Ooh, he's one of us. Now we're special. We've got somebody we can claim. And so when they heard these things, so he he tell, and I will get to this in the second section. He's about to tell them a story about Elijah and Elisha, Elisha, about how they, uh, who it is that they serve, and that's going to offend them. And as a result of that, which I'll explain in the second section, we'll get back to it. But when when he says those things to them, when they hear those things, this, these are the people that were just marveling in him. All in the synagogue, exactly the same people who were just so proud of him, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And listen to what they did. They rose up, they raised themselves up, and they drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Remember the psalm that we're reading? They only planned to thrust him down from his high position they, so they could throw him down from the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Now, that, you know, this, this part of the story, I'm just trying to get across to you to say, when this happens to Jesus, when the crowd takes him out and they're trying to throw him down from a high place, we're seeing the Messiah embodying the reality of all the things that were said about him in the Old Testament. And in this case, that the crowds who see how exalted he is will in that same moment try to reach up and take him and cast him down from that position when you would think that they would just celebrate him. What is it that changed their minds so profoundly that they didn't want to celebrate him anymore, that they wanted to cast him down? Now, what we know for sure about the Messiah at this point is that he does experience, not just understand, he experiences humanity's precarious position. Jesus 
he's able just to pass through their midst. You know, they don't even, they, they don't, I, we don't, we're not giving anything else about it. I don't know what else it is. I don't know if he stares them down or makes himself invisible. Like he's going to walk through the wall. I don't know. I don't know what the, what the trick is. It would be a trick for us, but for him, it's just Tuesday, you know, as they say, I mean, obviously it's Saturday, it's the Sabbath day, but the point is, it's just another Saturday. It's Tuesday, Saturday. And so he's just, he just passes through the midst of them. That, that response doesn't change the fact that they wanted to throw him down from the hill. And there is a hill where he is not going to pass through their midst when they are trying to put him in the grave. So we, we all know that part of the story. What, what I want to get across here is that in the first part of the story, he's making himself vulnerable to that by coming down into their midst. And it's natural that if he is a human being in a high position of any kind whatsoever, then of course he's vulnerable because the higher they are, you know, the rest of the expression, even though I couldn't say it for you earlier. Now, the next four verses. So the first part of this, the Messiah experiences humanity's precarious position. Fine. The second part of this turns from a focus on salvation to a focus on hope. Salvation is discussed. The language is very similar, but we're introduced to hope for the first time here. And where salvation is about the fact that I'm in this high position, but because of that, whatever it is that I have that secures me is not enough, and I could be cast down from it, and I've got these enemies that are that are leaning over me. And, and by the way, we'll go back to this, but the imagery of those who want to attack him and batter him is that they are a leaning wall or a tottering fence. They're not even a ladder or something that you would describe as high. They are a leaning wall or a tottering fence. They're the barriers that are already attached to the ground, and yet they are the things that are leaning over the person to try to bring them down. We'll come back to that imagery later toward the end of the psalm. So now we take the second part of what the Messiah offers is not just salvation. You know, I need salvation. So the only place I can turn is God because all the people down here are looking to cast me down. That's what they want to do. So now where do I turn for hope? Well, to God. So soul, wait in silence for God alone is the source of your hope. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, and I shall not be shaken. All of those words are repeating what was said in verses 1 and 2, but with the difference that hope is introduced instead of simply salvation, and and that's obviously because he's going to be talking about God, our hope, in just a moment in the next two verses. But also, instead of not being greatly shaken, he's not shaken at all. And I don't think there's any great depth to that. I mean, it's pretty simple. In the first one, he's saying, I'm counting on God in his, to provide salvation for me, and even though the world is shaking around me, I will not be shaken from the place that God wants me to be. So I will not be greatly shaken, that kind of thing. It's just a declaration. But when he's trying to tell himself, steal yourself, trust, wait in silence, your hope is from God, he will not allow you to be shaken. You know, it's, it's more emphatic, I think, as a statement of affirmation, that you can trust God. He's not going to allow anything to happen to you. It's almost hyperbolic, but it's, it's making the point about a God who doesn't have to let anything happen to you. But the, the not be greatly shaken, I think, it has more to do with the fact that he's saying it as someone, and again, you say, well, he's the Messiah. He knows all these things. He doesn't have to be told any of this. But he's also fully man. 
and he's giving these songs to his people so they can know what to sing when exactly the same thing is happening to them. So anyway, he says, For God alone my soul wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I will not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust him at all times, O people. And then the imagery that brings us back to what is constantly repeated in this psalm, which is the things that are high and the things that are low, the things that are cast down. And in this case, I don't find my hope by solidifying my position on high. I don't find my hope by ascending the temple mount and then exalting myself so that I can appear eye to eye with the mighty one. I don't do any of that. Instead, I pour out like a libation offering. I pour out my sacrifice. I pour out my liquid. I pour out my heart before God's face. And so he is above. He is high. He has power. He has strength. But I am emptied into the ground. I give up all of my power. And so I pour out this, and that is the, that the imagery of pouring out yourself before the face of God is a sacrificial image. It's the libation image. You are pouring your drink offering into the ground. I pour out my heart before him, and God is a refuge for us. That's where our hope is found. So when the Messiah is offering hope to his people, it's not in maintaining or regaining their power, but in dismissing all of it, pouring it all out, putting it all the way into the ground and saying, my hope is only in you, Lord. I'm not going to be able to defend this myself. And so this is also present in that passage in Luke in several different ways. So I'm going to go back and read it to you again. This is in Luke 4, same, same passage, when he picks up the text and reads it, for instance. What is the part of the passage that he reads from Isaiah that says he's the Messiah? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to whom? Oh, climb the mountain and give it to the wealthy. No. And and again, this is not a curse on the wealthy. It's not a statement against the wealthy. It's a statement about what it means to find our hope in pouring ourselves out before God in the same way the Messiah poured himself out before his Father's face. So the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And then listen to the people he names. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. I didn't just come down. I came down, and then I had to go down from there to find the poor and the captive and the blind and the oppressed and to proclaim to them the year of the Lord's favor finally coming to them. And he said to them, Jesus said to them, as he went on, doubtless after they said, oh, this is him. Oh, wow, look at the Messiah. It's so great. He says to them, "Mm, without a doubt, you're going to end up quoting me the proverb that says, physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Now here, their sentiment is, oh, you've been doing miracles at at these places in Capernaum and other places. You're going to do it for us, right? I mean, we're in your hometown. We're your people. Now, and and you know Jesus' response here, we take as sort of a psychological inclination of people. 
well, people don't respect a messenger if they already know them. They're not going to see them as a prophet if they grew up with them or something like that because the familiarity would keep them from knowing them. And there is a truth in that proverb, and there's no problem taking it that way. But that's not what's going on here. Because when Jesus says, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, the reason it's not acceptable, the reason that prophet's not acceptable is because of what he's going to say to that hometown that they don't want to hear. Because what they want to hear is, I'm your guy. I'm for you. You don't have to, you don't have to think about all those people who've been marauding you, attacking you, hating you, uh, saying they're better than you. And boy, did they. Remember, when they say Jesus is from Nazareth, the whole response is, can anything good come from that place? That's how everybody outside looked at Nazareth. For them to say, the Messiah is here with us was for them to say, we're going to be special now. We're going to be better now. And Jesus is saying, listen to what he says to them. You're going to say to me, physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown for us because we're your people as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. In truth, in contrast to a prophet being acceptable in his hometown, you want to know how it really is? It's like this. In truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. That's his hometown. Elijah's hometown is Israel when the heavens were shut up three years and six months. And a great famine came over all that land, and Elijah was sent to not one of those widows who was suffering in Israel. Not one of them, but to Zarephath, to the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. That, for us, doesn't mean anything, Zarephath, Sidon. I mean, what even is that? That's the hometown of Jezebel. This is where the Baal worshipers had their seat. They were they Ahab's influence to take Israel away from worshiping Yahweh was from Zarephath and Sidon. These are the worst Gentiles of the worst. And that's who Elijah was sent to help. And that's what Jesus is saying to his hometown people. You think I'm coming here to do miracles for you? God didn't send Elijah to help his hometown people. He sent Elijah to help those despicable Russians. You know, he sent Elijah to help those crummy people who are trying to immigrate. Ooh, that makes it personal. Let me just skip that one. He sent Elijah to help all the people we don't want to help and you don't want to help. And then, as if that's not insulting enough, he goes on to say, and, you know, look at all the lepers who were in Israel. Elisha, Elijah's follower, Elisha could have helped any of the lepers in Israel, but he didn't help any of them. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Yeah. And what do they do when they hear these things? The same thing they do to Paul. When he says, you know, God sent me to go to the Gentiles, they attack him. They're ready to cast him off the hill. That's what brings about their anger. The very next words after he says, Naaman the Syrian, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath at him. Now, I just want you to think about why that is. He has humbled himself in the way he's telling us in this psalm to humble ourselves. Pour out your heart. If you want hope in God, pour out your heart before his face. Don't try to exalt yourself. Don't try to find hope in your own power. 
hope in God. And you find hope in God by humbling yourself before him. You pour yourself out. And here comes the Messiah pouring himself out to go and help the lowest of the low. For the people who are in Israel, it's the oppressed, the blind, the captive, the poor. That's who he's sent to. So he comes humbly as a Galilean, as a Nazarene, as a tradesman's son to help the poor, captive, blind, and oppressed. And then what he's doing to the people who are around him who are saying, we're tired of being oppressed and poor. We're tired of being despised by everyone else. We're finally going to be exalted above everyone else. He says to them, I'm not here to exalt you. I'm not here to show you how great you can be. And so he confronts his own people with the reality that they're not above the Gentiles with the story about the widow of Zarephath or Naaman, the Syrian, those who are constant enemies to God's people in that day. So his embrace of those outsiders is accomplishing the opposite of what the people who want to thrust him off the brow of the hill want accomplished, which is they want to be on top of the hill. And they don't want anybody else to be up there with them. And if he wants them to be broken, then they want him to be broken. So you say you're the anointed one, you've been exalted by God, then where are they going to try to put him? At the bottom of the cliff. That's where they want to throw him. So this is what we find out in verses 9 through 12, and I think this is the miracle of the psalm, and it's just so brilliant. So in, 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 and what this, I mean, what verses 9 through 12 give us, the end of the psalm, is the Messiah telling us, it, because he's the one who writes the psalm, you know, David as the Messiah writing the psalm. So because the Messiah gives us the psalm, he's telling us about God's power and mercy, and then he's taking us to those things. So look at what happens in verse 9. He says, those who are of a low estate. So let's start with the poor. Let's start with the ones who don't have any power in this world. They're but a breath. I think that's just sort of a stage setting. Uh, It's a way of saying, this is how you think of them. You don't think of them as anything. They have no value to you. And I think this is obvious in our own way of treating people. If people have no power with us, we don't give a rip about them. We drive by them in traffic and don't give them a second thought. We don't care if they have the image, God, just get out of my lane and let me get where I'm going. We do the same thing with the homeless. We walk by them and we don't even see them. We don't even acknowledge them. We pass people in hallways, thousands of people. We don't even see their faces. And I'm not criticizing you for it. All of us are that way. How could we not be? You can only know so many people. It's fine. Those who have no power in your life, they're just like a breath to you. You breathe them in, you breathe them out, they're gone. You never even saw them. I I don't think David is saying anything surprising or shocking or even critical here. I think he's simply saying that's how you think of those who have no power. Those who are of a low estate, they're like a breath. They're a vanity. They appear for a little time and vanish away. That's, that's the word breath. It's just a vanity. It appears for a moment and then vanishes away, the same way James talks about it in the New Testament. Those of a high estate, we think, oh, well, they're more than breath, right? Well, he's going to come back to say they're just a breath. But how's he going to get to that? Because we think of them as substantial. They tell a joke. We laugh. They walk into the room. We see them. We know. Those who are of a high estate, they're delusional. They're deceiving themselves and you. In the, and, and by the way, being of a high position, that's where we started back in verse 4. They, they intend to thrust him down from his high position because what people want is to be in that high position. 
We don't want to be a breath. We don't want to appear for a little time and then vanish away. We want people to remember us. I'm somebody significant. I've got my name out there. You'll know me forever. You'll never forget me, right? So I want to be in the highest state. And if someone else is there, the easiest way there is to take their place. So I climb up above them. So those who are of a high state, they're delusional. In the balances, this is the this is so brilliant. In the balances, they go up. I'm not brilliant. They're, this is a brilliant metaphor in the psalm. Wow. Those of a high estate are delusional. In the balances, the balances are fundamental to their economy and to their morality. If you're going to be holy, God even says, don't give people different balances. Use the same balance with one person, the same weight with one person. as uses. It's a basic image for them. They know what this looks like. If you go up in the balances, you're not weighty. <laughs> you know? So these people, I'm so high. Well, you know why you're so high? Because everything else weighs more than you do. You're so light. You're no more than a breath. That's what the people of low estate were. Of course you're high. You're floating up just like the air does. Of course you're high. You don't have any substance. And I think built into the imagery is the wealth itself. Those who are a high estate are delusional. You put them in the balances. Well, they're on one side. Their money's on the other side. Which one has weight? It's not the person. No, nobody's, Nobody cares about the person. It's the money. How do I get to your money? Why do people laugh at wealthy person's jokes? Because they want the money, not the person. Low estate, high estate. Is there really any difference in those two people? He says, no, not really. You really don't see the other person either, do you? They're just a breath. They're just a means of accessing the part of that balance that's down, you know, getting to the stuff you want so that you can be lifted up to that high place where we'll notice that you're nothing more than a breath either, right? It's pretty hard on all of us. We're all just a breath, you know, in verse 9. In contrast to that, what we want is power. We want the ability to provide for ourselves, to, you know, create some stability, something, you know? So he warns against all the different ways we will try to do that. So put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, don't set your heart on them. We don't have, he's saying, because all of us are like a breath in verse 9, we don't have a way to resolve the precariousness of our existence ourselves. We can't negotiate for it. This is the extortion part. We can't coerce someone through negotiation, can't coerce God to regard us as greater. We can't stop the world from passing us by because of how much we can negotiate with them about how we're going to be important forever. We can't force people to recognize it or God. We can't plunder it out of people. We can't purchase our safety or earn our safety. We don't have enough wealth for it. We can't give ourselves a future or a hope. We don't have any of it. In verses 9 and 10, that's what he's saying. We're a breath. And your extortion or robbery or wealth is not going to make you anything more than that. In fact, in contrast, the more of that you have, the more it'll just show how light you are, right? So where do we go? Well, once God said this, and then I heard it again, and I realized it must be true, right? That's the idea behind the expression, I think. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this that power belongs to God. See, we were trying to establish power with robbery or wealth or extortion, but the power doesn't belong to us. Power belongs to God, and he's proven it. 
and belonging to God is steadfast love, mercy, two different things. See, in the first section, I needed salvation. I needed someone who would respond to my need for deliverance, someone who would have mercy on me, but I need it from someone who has power because I don't. All I have is the ability to pour out myself lowly before someone who might have power. Thank heavens, God, literally, thank heavens, God has power and steadfast love, mercy. He cares about his people. For you will render to a man according to his work, which I don't think, by the way, is just about you, like, uh, oh, and God's going to test us according to whether we've earned it or not. He's paying attention to what people are doing. He knows what those who are trying to thrust us down are doing, but he also knows what was happening when they were thrusting down his anointed one. And so this is what we learn about the Messiah. This is what we learn from the Messiah about the Messiah and how we learn it. Because what were we doing to the Messiah? So, look, you know, here's the Messiah. He's humbling himself, and they seek to cast him down further. He has come down to walk among men and take on the form of humanity, and we seek to take him lower. There was nothing humanity could do, and this is what we want. We want to exalt ourselves. We want to make ourselves powerful. We want to be king over our own world. We want to rule our own lives, right? We want to be exalted. We want to have power. But we couldn't reach up to heaven and get God down from there. We tried Tower of Babel, you know, different ways. Never works. We can't get there. We just don't have the means. So we couldn't reach up to heaven to pull him down. But he came down on his own. He volunteered. He descended from heaven and came and walked among us. And when he had come down to become humanity, we, like a leaning fence, because let's face it, none of us is high. None of us are exalted. The most powerful among us, the tallest among us, his feet still walk literally on the ground that will be his grave. On that ground, none of us are high. None of us are exalted. But we can lean over like a fence, get over somebody and totter there and say, I'm going to fall on you and crush you and I'll push you down further. Even when the people are taking Jesus up on the hill, you know, that's the, that's the testimony of it. They can't even get off the ground. They just have to go up on a hill and say, but we'll put you on a deeper part of the ground than we're already on and we'll be buried in eventually. And we're going to bury you in that ground. And that's what Paul is talking about in Philippians. When he says we should be a little more like Christ, who, when he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be held on to, but instead emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. So he comes down to be among us and being born in the likeness of men, and then being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So we took him, and we grabbed him where we could finally reach him. Oh, he's in range. Grab him now. We can get him down. We can take him down from his high position. And when we put ourselves as high as we could get, still on the ground, still just above the grave, when we finally get ourselves just to that point so that we can push him down into the grave itself, and when instead of passing through them, he stops his own people from defending him and says, no, 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 this is what the Father called me to. This is what I do. When he goes to the hill and he allows them to cast him off, they nail him to a cross. When we push him down into the grave, 
the most powerful thing he shows is this. He comes out of the grave revealing that he's the one who has all the power. Once God has spoken, twice now I've heard it. Power belongs to God. So we learn from the Messiah in casting him down that power belongs to God, but we learn something else too. Because when we were pulling God down and when we were pushing him into the grave, when we have accomplished our goal of destroying him, standing on his neck and nailing him to a cross, what we find out when we finally get him all the way down to the bottom is that he still has mercy, that his love really is steadfast, that he chose to be there to show us how deep his mercy really is. What's the terrible way we learned that? By being the ones who put him in the grave so that he could declare the power that was still his and the mercy that's still ours. Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Creamer. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. (laughs) Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at barrycreamer.com. Until next time, keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.